book of Colossians. We're going to be reading from chapter 2, verse 6 through 15. And uh, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, you can find us on page 834. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is God's word. Thanks, Gerald. Morning, everyone. Um, so one, one thing to clarify about these surveys, too, is just if you, were, if you were a college student and you didn't fill one out because you're not working and you think we didn't want you to fill one out because you're just a student, um, we do actually uh, want you to fill one out. We would like your input. So if you didn't fill one out, um, please do so, and you can just like put student as your job title and um, for your vocation, you know, if you know what you're going to major in, just circle the one that's closest to uh, whatever it is you're majoring in. And uh, when you're done, you can just uh, hand it to an usher at the end of service. Okay? So if you were here um, last week, hopefully you'll remember that we uh, preached through or we looked at the last chapter of Joshua uh, in the book, uh, in the final chapter of Joshua. Hopefully you will recall that you could... You know, Joshua kind of gave what I guess you could call his swan song uh, to the Israelite people. Uh, he was getting old. He knew his ministry, as well as his time on earth, uh, would soon be over. So he wanted to be sure to convey a very important uh, message to the Israelites to be sure they would stay on track even in his absence. So he urged the people, if you remember last week, to serve God faithfully and exclusively. And he warned them about the dangers of serving other gods. And I shared last week about how the people back then um, grew up in a very polytheistic culture. That is, they were in a culture that was used to just serving and worshiping many different gods. And we talked about last week how even though none of us necessarily bow down to you know, gods carved of stone or wood, um, we can often fall into forms of polytheism where things can become like gods to us and it robs the true God of the exclusive devotion that he deserves. I mentioned last week things like, you know, materialism, convenience, and the big God, 
which I think for most of us is ourselves. And, you know, we could probably name dozens more. And these things can so easily tempt us and sway us that we lose our faithful devotion to God. And so the question is, you know, how can we stay steadfast and persevere with Christ? Um, I'm sure most of you adults know and remember this person, but I'm, I'm curious, how many of you youth remember who Deion Sanders is? Do you, do you guys have any idea who Deion Sanders is? Raise your hand if you know who Deion Sanders is. None of you. Because well, none of you were born yet. None of you. Well, Deion Sanders, I'm sure all the adults know and, and, and will remember, he was a, a professional athlete, and he wasn't just a professional athlete. He was a two-sport professional athlete. He played in both the NFL and the MLB. And one record that he holds is that he is the only player to have scored an NFL touchdown and a major and hit a major league home run in the same week. And he did it in 1989. And no one before and since then has ever done that. And probably no one ever will, I, I suspect. So Sanders, he, you know, he, he, he's famous. You know, he was called at that time, um, Prime Time, I think was his nickname, and, and Neon Dian. Um, some of his, uh, uh, yeah, he had so many highlights. And if you were around in, in the 80s and 90s, like I said, you would know who he was. Um, but he grew up in this, in a, in a poor family. He, he grew up in the inner city of Fort Myers, Florida. And in a magazine article uh, that was written about him many years ago, Dian shared about his childhood and how exposure to some would-be athletes spurred him to become a success. He said, I hung around these people I called Idas. If I'd have done this, I'd be making $3 million today. If I'd have practiced a little harder, I'd be a superstar. They were as fast as me when they were kids, but instead of working for their dreams, they chose drugs and a life on the street corners. When I was young, I had practice. My friends who didn't, went straight to the streets, and they never left. And the writer of the article added very insightfully after Dan said this, he said, you know, that moment after school is the moment we need to grab. We don't need any more idols. And I think that's so true, too, in our Christian life. You know, we don't want to be looking back and saying, well, if I'd have done this, I'd have a better relationship with God, or if I'd have done this, I would have served God more. You know, I chose this passage in Colossians this morning because Paul, the author of this letter, touches on the subject on how to stay steadfast. You know, there's no quick fix to permanently get rid of all the idols or temptations that would seek to lure us away. But Paul, here in our passage, gives us a good basis on where to start. Like Joshua, Paul urges his listeners to live a life of, of faithful, exclusive service to the Lord. His premise in verse 6 is that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, that should be seen or demonstrated in some way. It's not just enough to believe. Belief must lead to faithful action. And you can see this as he writes in verses 6 to 7. So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So here Paul is telling the Colossians, you already have the faith part, you have received Jesus Christ as Lord. Now you need to work more on the practice side. You need to live in him, be built up in him, become strengthened in him, and overflow with thankfulness. I mean, this is what he says the Colossians and, and we can infer all believers are to do. 
But Paul faced a problem. And Paul's problem was that there were these false philosophies going around. And it was leading people astray. And you can see this from what he writes in our chapter. If you uh, look a little before our our passage for today in verse 4, Paul writes, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And we read in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And we don't know, you know, what these false teachings were. Paul doesn't explicitly name them. But we can kind of figure out some characteristics from about these false teachings from these verses. You know, from verse 8, you know, it says right there that it, these teachings were based on human tradition, human wisdom. It probably contained some sort of spiritual or mystical element. Um, I don't know what your version of the Bible has. Uh, some versions of the NIV translate this phrase, basic principles of this world. But if your NIV has that, you can probably see a footnote. In my version of the NIV, it says elemental spiritual forces. And so there's, you know, this, some types of spirit or, or mysticism going around. Verse 18, if you want to look at that, also supports that when it says, Do not let, let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. And more importantly, from verse 8, the biggest issue with these teachings is that it just wasn't centered on Christ. It may have included teachings about Christ, but it didn't teach that Christ was sufficient. It sought to add things to the Colossians' faith in addition to Christ. Another thing we can gather is from verse 4. In verse 4, it shows us that these teachings were given by people who were very eloquent in speech and probably were people who were seen as experts in certain fields. So it was easy you know, for people to be led astray because they sounded so persuasive and they were considered, once again, these experts. And related to this, one commentator shared that in the ancient world, as well as even in our days, people often measure the values of what others say by how well they say it and by their credentials. The result is that we learn to value elegant systems of church dogma that are held together by sophisticated and learned arguments. He continues, in the life of many congregations, faith has become so intellectualized that its relational, experiential dimension has been bleached out. Of course, you know, it's important to think through what, what and why, what one believes and why they believe it. Yet, this professor adds, many of my students come to university with strongly held convictions about Christ, but without the experience of a vital relationship with him. Knowing what to believe has replaced knowing whom to believe. And later he adds that this can also become a form of idolatry because the idea of God is replacing a life-transforming relationship with God. So we can see, you know, just how many, you know, how many things like this and others can, can become idols in our lives. And this is a problem that Joshua faced with the Israelites, with, that Paul faced with the Colossians, and that we individually face. So once again, how do we fight against these things that seek to become idols in our lives? And I like how Paul seeks to address this issue with the Colossians. You know, usually when we see something erroneous, about most of you, myself included, 
will seek to confront the error by attacking it and just pointing out everything that's wrong with it. And, and Paul does highlight some of you know, the erroneous things about these philosophies, but more so he spends the majority of his writing pointing people to Christ. And that's what I hope to do for the rest of my time this morning is to point you to Christ because Paul understands that the fight against these philosophies and other things that can lead us astray, we need to be called back to the truth and understand who we are in Christ and all that he's done for us. And so in the rest of our passage, Paul is going to show us three ways, three things on how we are complete in Christ. So the first thing Paul is going to explain to us is that Christ has given us his complete self, his complete self. Paul writes in verses 9 to 10, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given the fullness of Christ, who is head over every power and authority. Paul's rationale is that, well, the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. It wasn't just the shadow of God. It wasn't just an image. But it was God genuinely indwelling in Jesus. And since those who are believers have Christ in their lives, well, then accordingly, we have the fullness of God. We have all we need. You know, those those false teachers may come and try to tell you otherwise. Maybe they'll tell you that you need something more than Christ, such as, a set of rules or practices to follow. Paul says, no. He says, you have all the completeness, completeness you need in Christ. Not that they were all where they you know, needed to be at, but they didn't need anything more to be able to grow. All that they needed to grow and continue in their relationship with Christ, they already had. We see an interesting contrast because in 1 Corinthians, the problem with 1 Corinthians and why Paul was writing that letter was because the Corinthians were getting prideful because they thought they had already, you could say, like, arrived in Christ. But Paul warns them in 1 in Corinthians 4. He says, don't get puffed up because you think you have already arrived in Christ, because you think you're where you need to be. The people in Corinth thought they were full of Christ, but actually Paul explains to them that they were just kind of full of themselves. But here in Colossians, the people had the opposite problem. They were being told the fullness that they longed for cannot be obtained in Christ alone. And so they were getting defeated and feeling deflated in their spiritual journey. So Paul comes alongside them and he tells them, you don't need anything more. You have Christ. And with Christ, the fullness of God is in you. And if that's such, you know, what more do you need? You have the fullness of God in you. And just, you know, stop for a minute and just think about that reality. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the fullness of Christ dwells in you. It's not just a part of Christ, it's not a majority of Christ, but 100% of Christ, 100% of the fullness of God is dwelling in you. You, Sure, you may not feel like it's that way, you may not feel like you have the fullness of Christ in you, But Paul is reminding his readers and reminding us to be cognizant of it. Just because you don't feel like this doesn't take away from the reality that this is true. You don't need anything more because you have been given this, because Christ has given you his complete self. And in 2 Peter, you can see the verse that I have on the, you know, on the PowerPoint. It says, in 2 Peter verses 1, or chapter 1 verse 3, he says, 
His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He has given us everything we need for a godly life for a godly life through our knowledge of him. When did we get this knowledge of him? When we became believers in Christ. So we have everything we need to live the Christian life. We have the fullness of God in us. The next thing Paul tells us is that Christ has given us complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. He writes in verses 11 to 14, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in this in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, or, or that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. In these four verses, Paul is going to show, show us two things that Christ did for us to forgive our sins. First, he says we were circumcised, but it was not a circumcision done by the hands of men. It was done by Christ. So, so what does this mean? So probably back during their time, there were some uh, Jewish false teachers going around telling the Colossian church that they needed to be circumcised in order to be part of God's family. They needed to be physically circumcised. You know, in the Old Testament, these Jewish leaders would tell them, God gave us the practice of circumcision, which was a visible outward sign that you were part of God's family. And so they would ask the Colossians, you know, well, what is your outward sign? And if you don't have one, well, you better get circumcised because we are circumcised and we are part of God's family. But Paul refutes this demand by telling the Colossians, you don't need to be physically circumcised because you've already been circumcised by Christ. And it's not the physical circumcision you're thinking of, but it's better. Paul is explaining that instead of just cutting off you know, the male foreskin, which would be done in physical circumcision, Christ has spiritually cut off the body of their, of their sinful flesh. Without the hands of men, as it says in verse 11, Christ has cut away our old unbelieving self and its use for sin and stripped away its power so that we can now believe in Christ and live for him. Paul would argue that physical circumcision signifies nothing unless it is accompanied by a true spiritual circumcision, which is being, which is having a changed heart for Christ. And once again, Christ has done this for us by cutting away our old, sinful, unbelieving self. And the second thing Christ did for us to give us complete forgiveness was that he canceled our debt. For those who attend regularly, if you remember um, Pastor Chuck a while back, right before Easter, I think it was, he gave a series on all that Christ has done for us by, you know, by dying on the cross. He wanted us to understand what some of these Christian terms we often use mean, like you know, redemption and justification. And, and, and he also related like scenarios that these words were commonly used in back in those times. So, for example, if you remember when we talked about redemption, you know, he related it to how this would commonly be thought of as like between a slave and a slave owner. Or when, with the word justification, if you remember, he said that it would be, the scenario thought of would 
probably be like a courtroom. One context I don't think he spoke about was this cancellation of debt. And the scenario would be like a, like a bank, like a financial transaction taking place. Beginning at the end of verse 13, once again, and going into verse 14, we read, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us instead of opposed to us. In the original language, this word that's translated in our Bible as written code is the same word that was used back then for an IOU, a note that would acknowledge a debt but written by the debtor. Paul uses the same word in Philemon when he instructs Philemon that, you know, whatever wrong Onesimus has done or owes you, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. It's the same word. I will pay it back. I'm giving you an IOU. I'm letting you know that whatever Onesimus owes you, I am responsible to pay for it. And what Paul is reminding the Colossians here is that in verse 14, First of all, that God is setting a high standard for his people. We discussed last week that, you know, God is a holy God. He demands holiness from his people. And unfortunately, he doesn't grade on a curve. You know, he demands perfection. It's either get 100% and pass or you fail. You know, even if one could perform at a 99.9% level of obedience, he would still fail. So our sins, our disobedience piled up this debt to God. We owe God for that. Every time we sin, we have to write it down you because we became in great debt to God. And we had to pay it. But in order to pay it, it would destroy us. We were condemned. But then God steps in and he does an amazing thing through Jesus. Paul says in these verses that God takes our debt, these IOUs, this huge list of IOUs that we owe him, and he places it on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not that he just took our IOUs and he just tore them up and he said, oh, forget about it, you don't have to pay it. It's that the amount that was owed was paid by Christ's death because Christ perfectly met God's demand. So Christ and only Christ could sufficiently compensate for this debt. You know, back in those days, when criminals were crucified on a cross, it was a common thing to nail the charges of the cro- the charges placed against this criminal, nailed, to nail it on the cross so that people knew when they walked by why this criminal died, what the charges were against him. And Paul is alluding to this practice by saying, once again in verse 14, how, you know, it wasn't the charges against Christ that were nailed against, you know, nailed to him because he was innocent. I mean, he, he was falsely accused. There was nothing that would condemn him. But it was our wrongdoings, our debt that was nailed to the cross. And because of that, the price was paid and our debt was fulfilled. Martin Luther exclaimed this. He said, Thou, Christ, art my sin and my curse, or rather, I am thy sin, thy curse, thy death, thy wrath of God, thy hell. And contrarywise, thou art my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, my heaven. Now just, just pause again for a moment and just let that truth sink in. No matter what you may have done in the past, no matter what you think back on and, and just feel a sense of shame and guilt over, Paul tells you in verse 13 and 14, 
God forgave all your sin. He took it all away. You, know, you don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to continue to beat yourself up over whatever it is you may have done. You know, God forgave you so you can forgive yourself. Your sins are gone. They're removed. You are completely forgiven. And that, that's, now understand, you know, that's not just a free ticket to just go do whatever you want and keep on sinning. You know, no, of course not. We, we still have to live our lives for Christ. But it's humbling to just take that step back and just think that my sins are gone. They're forgiven. No matter what I've done, no matter how bad I think, I may, excuse me, I may have screwed up, we're completely forgiven. And for me, it's just a very humbling and awful, not like A-W-F-U-L, but A-W-E-F-U-L, you know, an awful thing to consider. That the Holy God chose to send His Son Jesus to completely forgive our sins. And then the final thing Paul teaches us in our passage is that we have complete victory. Complete victory. He writes in verse 15, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Reflecting on this verse, um, author David Garland writes, The image captures what Paul calls the secret wisdom of crucifixion. Jesus' captors dragged them through the city, stripped them naked, held them up to contempt, and nailed the charges against them to the cross. But all along, God was doing this to them. God made a public example of showing how utterly impotent they were before this divine demonstration of love and forgiveness and how utterly helpless they were to deter the divine power that raises the dead. I get this picture you often see like in war movies where one side captures some of the other side's forces and afterwards, you know, they would parade these POWs down through the street in town so that, you know, it shows that these soldiers were defeated and they would feel humiliated um, before, you know, this one side's forces. You know, this is what comes to mind when I read, he made a public spectacle out of them. They were totally defeated because of the cross. But I think the problem is that a lot of people don't often see them as defeated. Some people are convinced that you know, they are simply products of forces of nature over which they have no control or remedy. Whether it's because of demons or other spiritual forces, you know, it's the force of nature. You know, people often consider themselves held in bondage by these powers. You probably heard or read the story this week about you know, Private Bradley Manning, he was the army private that was just convicted this past week um, for leaking classified U.S. documents to, you know, WikiLeaks. Uh, but after his conviction, as you may have read or heard on the news, it came out that he actually considers himself a female and he wants the army to give him hormone replacement therapy so that he can become more feminine. Um, defense lawyers raised this trans raised this trans excuse me transgender issue during the sentencing phase of his court martial, describing the emotional distress that he endured while deployed in Iraq. Manning's attorney shared in an interview, I'm hopeful that the prison he's going to in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, will do the right thing and provide hormone therapy. And if not, 
then I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure they are forced to do so. And a somewhat related issue, I don't know if you've heard about this bathroom bill in California. The governor of California just signed um, this bathroom bill two weeks ago, which would allow children, uh, kids K through uh, K through eight, or I think it's a little older than that, K through sixteen or something, the the uh, the power or, or the allowance to do things like use bathroom the bathroom facilities and join the activities of whatever gender they identify with the most, not the gender they were necessarily born into. So things like if, 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 uh, if a guy felt like he was more of a woman than, uh, than, a, than a man, then this kid, no matter how old they were, could go use the women's washroom. And if this kid could felt like he was more of a woman than a man, then he could go join the women's volleyball team instead of the men's volleyball team. This was just signed into law um, two, two weeks ago in California, and it goes into effect uh, January 1st of next year. Um, the implication in both of these stories, and I don't bring them up just to alarm people, but the implication is that the people, the issues that these people are dealing with, or whether it's these children who are kind of confused or Private Bradley Manning, the implication is that these issues are beyond their control. And they don't have to take responsibility because they can't help the way they are. And so we have to uh, make concessions for them because they can't help the way they are. And, you know, closer to home, though we, we may not deal with such, you know, strange behavior, uh, which we feel we have to overcome, you know, we do have our own issues, which a lot of us feel powerless to overcome. And so we succumb to them. But in all these things, Paul would tell us, no, there is no force, no power, nothing that Christ has not defeated. There is nothing that is not captive to him. You don't have to walk around with a sense of defeat you can find deliverance from anything in Christ. And you're saying to yourself, yeah, well, that's really easy to say, but it's hard to do. You don't know the demons I fight. And that's, that may very well be true. And, and your point is very well taken. A former bishop of Norway, this Bishop Burgraf, he said, in baptism, we take the old man and put him under, but the old man sure can swim. And that's true. How a lot of us feel is we fight these demons, we fight these temptations. We still have our old flesh and we must battle with it. So what do we do? Well, we do fight. We fight to unlearn patterns of sin and do what we can to overcome destructive behaviors. But we are also to be mindful that whatever it is we are battling, it's already been defeated on the cross and no longer has the power to control us, even though it seems like it does. Whatever it is, it's already lost. It's been, it's been defeated. So you don't have to feel like you need to lose to them. So, you know, recognize that Christ has given us, once again, his complete self, complete forgiveness, complete victory. Why was it so important for Paul to tell his readers this? Because he knew that to com combat false idols and ideologies, the people, once again, must recognize truth. 
And when we meditate on this truth and let it permeate our lives, it will control what we think and do. As one commentator put it, the doctrine about what God has accomplished for us in Christ must be engraved on our minds so that it continually inspires and sustains our lives. I mean, this is not just head stuff. This is stuff that, when properly applies, affects our heart, affects our hands, and will transform our character, it will impact our actions. So come to recognize that all that Christ, all that Christ has done to you, to enable you to live greater lives for him, you can live with the more, the more that God has for you, and not feel like you have to contend or just stay with the lesser life that you feel, you know, you're, 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 you're helpless to live above. He's given you the more. You have been made complete in Christ. So let this penetrate your mind. Let it penetrate your soul. So that, as this commentator states, it continually inspires you and sustains you to live faithful lives for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this truth that you give us in your word. And Father, I do confess that, you know, for myself and I'm sure for many of my friends, if not all, uh, we all struggle with living faithful lives to you. We all struggle with perseverance. Maybe we already, some of us already feel like uh, we are, you know, just condemned to live a life of defeat because we battle so many demons. Um, Lord, I don't know, you know exactly what's going on in everyone's life, but you do. And you tell us that you have given us completeness in Christ. That you have given us complete forgiveness and complete victory. And most of all, you have given us the fullness of yourself. So that we have all that we need to live our lives for you. So Lord, help us to recognize this truth. Let it penetrate our minds and our hearts and our souls so that it reflects on our character, it reflects on how we act, and that we can move from living a life of defeat to a life of victory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.